Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, and we'll be looking at six verses in that passage in 1 Timothy 1. We want everybody to be able to look along with us, so these brothers have some Bibles. Get their attention as they make their way back. If you need a Bible, they'll get one to you that's marked at that passage. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word, so please keep that Bible. And look with us at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Well, anyone who is a Christian has a conversion story. And that's because every Christian has had a moment in time when they moved from being estranged from God, estranged from God because of our sin, to being related to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. Jesus died the death that we deserved. And everyone who is a Christian has been converted when he or she believes that and receives the gift of life that Christ gives. So all Christians, then, have what's called a testimony. If asked to give your testimony, many of you would recount the circumstances surrounding the time that you came to realize your need for forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers, and then you asked him for that. So you might say things like, I realized I was a sinner, and I believed that Jesus died for my sins, so I asked him to forgive me and make me part of his family. And that would be a very good, concise testimony. And some may remember the place and even the exact day that 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 happened. Now, for me, I don't remember the date, but I was converted to Christ while reading the Bible in my bedroom at age 19. There was not a lot of fanfare associated with that. There were no fireworks that went off. But I was different from that moment on. Different in my relationship with God and different in my desire to please God. Others of you have more spectacular stories, spending years living for yourself, and then through a series of circumstances, God worked to bring you to a point that you knew what you needed, and you turned to faith in Christ, and you were changed. And the change was obvious because the before and after pictures were so very different. Still others of you were converted at a very young age without a lot of obvious sin in your background. And so the before and the after are not as dramatic, at least outwardly. And still others of you in this room, if asked to give your testimony, would say, I don't really know what you're talking about other than what you just said about other people's testimonies. I can't say that anything like that has actually happened to me. Well, it's our hope and our prayer that by the end of our time together, you'll have a testimony of being converted to Jesus Christ. And now with all the varieties of testimony. And that's because everybody's journey is different. With all that variation, it's important to understand that there are common elements to every conversion story. Even though we might have developed a kind of shorthand to describe our experiences along the lines of things like I just said, when the details are filled in, there are things that are universally true about each person who has come to Jesus Christ. This morning, we conclude our series that we've been in for several months now called Portraits of Grace. And we're going to see a testimony from the life of one named Paul. Now, we saw some of the circumstances of his testimony last Sunday. And if you were here, you know that it was a spectacular conversion indeed. He was formerly one who hated Christ and hated Christians, and he persecuted both. 
And he believed all the while that he was doing God a favor because he considered Christians to be blasphemers against God. We saw last week that he was on his way to kill more Christians. And on his way to Damascus to do that very thing, he was blinded and struck down by Christ. Having seen that Jesus was alive, he realized that his vendetta against Christianity was misguided, and he became just as zealous to promote the cause of Christ as he had been to destroy it. Now, not many of us have a conversion story with details like that of Paul. But what happened with him, now hear this, is the same thing that happens with a child who receives Christ at the knee of a parent who's just explained the simple but profound gospel story to him or her. Whether one is converted at six or 60, whether after a life of hard living or one that is relatively moral, whether raised in church or with no Bible training at all, whatever the situation, the elements are the same. And so today we see the testimony of Paul, which though different in the particulars, to be sure, those elements apply to each of us as the universal elements that are involved in conversion. So I invite you to verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Before that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now it's my hope this morning that in recounting what God did in the life of Paul, we will each be led to a new appreciation for what it is that he has done for us. For those of you who have no such story, today will be the day that you are converted to Christ. Let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we stand before you again as the needy recipients of your grace in every aspect of our lives. We need your grace given to us now as we look at your word. Grace to hear, grace to receive, grace to be changed. We pray that those of us who have a relationship with you because of you will be further changed into the image of Jesus. We pray that those who came into this room without a relationship with Jesus will leave with the gift of eternal life that he offers. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. A full Christian testimony involves a number of important elements. I say in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you haven't pulled that out yet, we take a look at your outline. And I say there that we are each, those of us who have been converted to Christ, we, each of us are to be testimonies to a number of things. The first is this, the scope of God's grace. We are to be testimonies to the scope of God's grace. 
Verse 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Now, you'll notice that in each of the points in this outline, I have the phrase, God's grace. And that's because although it's mentioned explicitly only in verse 14 in our passage, God's grace is what permeates the entire passage. That's why verse 12 begins with thanksgiving to Christ Jesus our Lord, because all that follows in verses 12 through 17 is a matter of His grace. And so we should, at the outset, make sure that we understand what grace is. God's grace is His favor given to His creatures. God does not owe anyone anything, and so kindness that he shows is not due to any obligation on his part, and so we sometimes say God's grace is his unmerited favor. Perhaps you've heard that, and that's a good shorthand way of putting it, because indeed he doesn't owe us. He's under no obligation, and we didn't do anything to merit the good gifts that God, by his grace, gives us. But the Bible goes even further than that. God's grace is not only unmerited, But by nature, God's grace is unwanted. That is, by our nature, by our sinful nature. Prior to being converted, prior to God's Spirit breathing life into us, we didn't want God's grace. You go, what do you mean? If God's grace is giving us good gifts, of course I want God's good gifts. That's not the same as wanting God's God's grace in Jesus Christ and in salvation specifically. To be sure, all people want the gifts that God gives but not his saving grace, and here's why, because we don't think we need it prior to his Spirit moving upon us. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who seeks God, not even one. So the grace that results in our conversion is undeserved, it's unearned, that is unmerited, and it is unwanted favor from God. And that grace is demonstrated in several ways. And I like the way that one commentator fleshed out verse 12 with four elements of God's grace that Paul saw in his own testimony and that are universal for the rest of us. And so I have them in your outline. The scope of God's grace includes four things. The first one is his electing grace. The scope of God's grace includes his electing grace. Paul, who wrote this, and for whom this is his testimony, was always aware of God's choice of him both before salvation, after salvation, and then for his vocation in apostleship. That's why we call him the Apostle Paul. He was a special, one of a select few special emissaries of God in what he did for God. He was elected to those. He was chosen by God to those. And we who are saved have been elected, chosen by God to that relationship with him. Paul gives his testimony two places in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22 and also in Acts chapter 26. In chapter 22, he says this, I was told God has chosen you, Paul. He says in Acts chapter 26 in recounting his testimony, Jesus said to me, I have appointed you. And then he says to the Christians at the church at Rome in the book of Romans, Through him, through Christ, we've received grace and apostleship. And then the same thing is true for all Christians, Paul says in other letters that he wrote. Our relationship with God begins with his grace. And that's why he says in Titus chapter 2, it is the grace of God that offers salvation to all people. 
And famously in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the very passage that I was reading in the Bible when I was 19 in my bedroom and God graciously turned the light on for me so that I understood his word and my need for it. And I turned to him and those blessed words say, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. For every one of us who have come to Christ, our choice to do that was preceded by his choice of us. Now, when did he do that? How long before we chose him did God choose us? Well, he tells us that. He, God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, this one whose testimony we're looking at, says in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, he chose us in him, notice, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's a very humbling idea when you consider that I can only come to God because of his grace. It's humbling because I have no ability within myself to come to God other than his grace given to me. It's humbling, but it's also, friends, liberating because it emphasizes that God is at work. And God didn't just start his work like, oh, no, Ken's really making a mess of his life. Let me see if I can jump in there. God, before the foundation of the world, was involved in the details of my life. He chose me. I only found out that he chose me 19 years later. And so it's liberating because it emphasizes God is at work, and it's not dependent then on my feeble efforts. That's why the Bible tells us the one who has began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. It's because God finishes what he starts. So the scope of God's grace includes his electing grace, but it also includes his empowering grace. His electing grace, but his empowering grace. Verse 12 says, He, Christ, has given me strength. Now that verse, verse 12, begins this section of his testimony all the way down to verse 17, but it is in contrast to what goes before. And if you read the verses that go before verse 12, you'll see that there's a discussion there about the law, the law that God gave, and the effectiveness of the law as a means to a relationship with God. And Paul says there, the law is good. There's no problem with the law. The problem is with us. And the law can't provide what we don't have. The law does not supply for us the inability that we have to keep it. So in contrast to the law, which can tell you what to do, but gives you no power to do it, he's saying here, Christ has strengthened me. That is, God's grace gives us the ability to perform what he demands. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this. We are not competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. But our competence comes from God. He has made us competent. So the scope of God's grace includes his electing grace, his empowering grace, and his entrusting grace. His entrusting grace. Verse 12 says, he considered me trustworthy. Now, that sounds like God looked at Saul, 
who we now know as Paul, Saul of Tarsus, and looked at him and said, now there's a guy, and I've actually heard this preached. God looks out at everybody out there and he says, ah, there's a man or woman I can use. Yikes. <laughs> if God looks out there to find a man or woman he can use, he finds nobody, nada. Because <laughs> we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. So it is, it is not Paul saying here that he received appointment because God thought so highly of him. That would contradict the entire passage and, frankly, the whole of Paul's message in his letters. But rather, that it's all the more amazing is what Paul is saying to him that God would ever entrust him with the gospel at all. I, Paul, am amazed that God would consider me one who could bear his message to the Gentiles. But he said, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, it is by the Lord's mercy that I have been entrusted, that I am trustworthy. I ask you, dear friends, as I ask myself, does it amaze you that God would use us as his ambassadors? That the Bible would say that we are Christ's ambassadors. The scope of God's grace includes his electing, his empowering, and his entrusting grace, and also his employing grace, his employing grace. The last part of verse 12 says, he appointed me to his service. And the word for service there in Greek, the language of your New Testament, is a generic term for any task. And so here specifically, Paul has been appointed to apostleship to be God's special emissary to the Gentiles, to be sure, but he's here using the term that is of a humble, menial, any kind of generic task. And so although the context is his apostleship, he's thankful that God is using him at all in whatever capacity. William Barclay tells the story, a story that illustrates the kind of selfless service to which Paul alludes here. He says, the Greek writer Plutarch tells us that when a Spartan won a victory in the games, his reward was that he might stand beside his king in battle. A Spartan wrestler at the Olympic Games was offered a very considerable bribe to abandon the struggle, but he refused. Finally, after a terrific effort, he won his victory. Someone said to him, well, what have you got out of this costly victory you've won? His answer was, I have won the privilege of standing beside of my king in battle. God has appointed us to his service. That means he gives us the privilege of standing beside him in the spiritual warfare that is taking place in his world. Friends, that's the scope of God's grace. That is the testimony of everyone who knows Jesus. But it also includes a second thing, the necessity of God's grace. There's the scope of God's grace, but also the necessity of it. Verse 13 says, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, now, we saw last week that indeed, Paul was indeed all of those, those things. In fact, in his testimony that he gives in Acts chapter 26, he says this, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them, Christians, punished, and I tried to force those Christians to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them. The word that is translated in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 1 the word that's translated violent man is hubristes. And it denotes the person who's driven by violence and contempt for others so as to mistreat them. To see them humiliated and suffering brings that individual pleasure. 
That's what Paul is saying about what he was. We might call a violent man like that a sadist. In fact, this very word is used of the Gentile world and how it expresses its depravity, its sinfulness. From the pen again of Paul in Romans chapter 1 where he says this, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. They are hubristes, insolent, violent. And he applies that to himself before coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he understood the necessity of God's grace in his own life. He was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, a sadist, really. He understood his need. Here's the problem for us. We don't see our need in the stark way that Paul saw his. Part of the reason some of us don't see that is because we have not had the experiences that a guy like Paul has had. Some of us grew up in Christian homes. Some of us don't see ourselves as quite that bad. And to the extent that we don't see ourselves as quite that bad, we diminish the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus. Dear friend, it is absolutely necessary for us to understand every person seated here, the one standing here, every one of us needs to see that we are like Saul of Tarsus. We are like every sinner that's mentioned in God's Word and everyone that you see on TV and meet at work and in your neighborhoods and in your family. You and I are no better. We are like that. How do I see myself that way? How do you see yourself that way so that you can magnify the grace of God in your testimony from your lips and your lives? How can I see myself that way? Understand this, sin will always find an available outlet. Our sin will always find an available way to demonstrate itself, an available outlet. With Paul, he had an available outlet. He was, as we saw last week, someone trained in the in Judaism and in the law, and someone who had been taught then that Christians were blasphemers and that Christ was a blasphemer. And therefore, his sin manifests itself in his, that outlet to hate Christians and to hate Christ that way. Yours doesn't manifest itself that way. Yours manifests itself in other ways. More, much more respectable ways. Dear friend, is there any such thing as a respectable sin? And yet we act like it, don't we? I mean, gossip's not that bad. Right? And yet God includes it in six, thing the Lord ha- six things the Lord hates. So we make our own prioritization of sin. Wow, that Saul was a really bad guy. I just have my more generic garden variety sins. They're not that bad. You know what we need to do? Let me make this suggestion to you. We need to learn to extrapolate our sin. You say, I'd do that if I had any idea what that meant. And what I mean by that is this. 
If you and I can do the stuff that we do, then extrapolate that into different circumstances. Put yourself now outside of your family. You weren't raised with the mores and the teaching that you received from your family. What would you be like if you were in a different kind of family? If you were raised in a different kind of culture? And the answer biblically is you and I would be just like what we see in everyone else. Extrapolate your sin so that you can realize how heinous it is to God who sees our hearts and sees the darkness of our hearts and what we are capable of committing. And when we do that, the brilliant light of the grace of the gospel of Jesus shines brightly. And only then. So I recommend that you learn to extrapolate your sin. Put yourself in different situations. If I'm capable of doing this stuff, the things that I think are garden variety and not that bad, in the privileged position that I have, what would I be like? And Then say to yourself, but for the grace of God, so go I. And do this as well then. Having done that and seeing then how dark it is, do this. Confess it. You know what confess means in the Bible? Literally, to say the same thing. That's what it means. So say about your junk. Say about the sin that you have tended to dismiss, your respectable sin. Say about all of that what God says about it. No weasel words. No, yes, I do this, and then add this. Isn't this beautiful? Yes, I do this, but everybody does. Well, we're not talking about everybody when we stand before God. We're talking about you. We're talking about me. Extrapolate your sin. Confess your sin. Then you see the need for God's grace in ways, in deeper ways than you ever did. And Then it magnifies the mercy of our God in bestowing this grace upon us. Every Christian testimony includes the scope and the necessity of God's grace. Thirdly, the greatness of God's grace. The greatness of God's grace. Verse 13 again. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, when it says I was shown mercy, literally, here's what it says. I was mercied. I was mercied by Christ. Now, some sports, like softball, Annie just completed her softball season, so I've seen a lot of girls softball over the last few weeks. And in softball, they have what's called a mercy rule. So if by the third inning, you're getting beat by 15 runs, the mercy rule is, mercy on you, <laughs> you're getting killed, so the game is over. If by the end of five innings, you're getting beaten by 10 runs, Mercy on you, game is over. And if it stays within those uh, ten runs, then it goes a full seven innings. And that's called getting mercy. And the idea is to put you out of your misery. And so when Paul says here, I was shown mercy, you could say here, Christ put me out of my misery. It implies, indeed, that Paul had some misery, as all sin does. All sin has some level of misery that goes with it. And it's God's mercy that relieves us of the misery of sin. 
You say, you know, I see people who are outside of Christ, man. They seem to be doing okay. You know, the psalmist said, why do the wicked prosper? They seem to be doing okay. They seem to be doing okay. They're not okay. They're chasing one thing for contentment after another and never finding it. There is, there is some level of misery with all sin, and that was the case with Paul. In fact, in that testimony in Acts chapter 26, here's what he says. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. This is Jesus saying to Paul, Saul at that point, Saul, you're miserable, aren't you? You're kicking against the goads. And the goads were a, a pole that a farmer would use against the backside of an ox to move it in the right direction. And here was Paul kicking against God's advances on his conscience. And then Jesus appears to him and he is mightily saved. But like Saul, we sinners in our sin take a licking but we keep on kicking. Keep on kicking against the goats. And we do so foolishly and to our own demise. That great theologian, John Cougar Mellencamp, said, I fight authority, authority always wins. Well, then why do you keep fighting? Because you're foolish. Why do we keep fighting? Why did Paul keep fighting? Until Jesus arrested him. Until he surrendered because Jesus grabbed hold of him. The book of Proverbs warns of us kicking against the goads as we are prone to do as sinners. When it says stern discipline awaits anyone who leaves the path, the one who hates correction will die. But the greatness of God's grace includes the fact that he removes us from our misery and there is some level of misery with all sin. And there are consequences, often miserable consequences, to the sin that we engage in. Even the garden variety, acceptable, respectable sins that we engage in. Dear friend, I pray that God will open your eyes so that you will see the heinousness of that sin. And so that you will see the misery that's caused by that sin, not only for you, but for others. And having looked at it, Recognize it for what it is. It is straying from the path that God is mercifully drawing us back toward. So when it says in verse 13, I was shown mercy, I was mercied, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What that's saying is this, that there was at that time obviously still hope for Saul. Because Christ appeared to him and he believed Christ and followed Christ. But that's in contrast to a person the Bible refers to as the hardened person. We won't go there for sake of time, but you might jot down Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. The fourth book in your Bible, Numbers, speaks of two categories of sin. It speaks of those who sin unwittingly in the NIV, and then it speaks of those in the King James who sin with a high hand. Do you ever remember reading that? And what that's referring to is this. It's someone who is so hardened that they have become apostate. The Bible differentiates between those who are apostate and thus hopeless and those who sin and, and are responsible but who have not sinned with a high hand. They have not given a final rejection 
of the truth that they have been given. This is a person who has the truth, the apostate, but rejects it and rejects it finally. Hebrews 6 refers to such a person. As we read these verses, it's going to sound like a person who is saved, a person who is a Christian. This is not referring to a person who is a Christian. This is referring to a person who has been given many, many marvelous privileges by God and who has rejected them. And notice what Hebrews 6 says. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. This is someone who knows all the stuff you know, has learned all the stuff you have learned, and then with a high hand shakes his fist to God and says, I don't need you, I don't want you. Now, it's impossible for us to know who is in which category, and God has not called me and the church to distinguish between who is and who is not. An apostate. But that should be a fearful thing for us, should it not? Paul says, God's mercy was extended to me, and I was not in that category as evidenced by the fact that when I was given this vision from Christ, here's what his testimony in Acts 26 says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. When faced with the truth, he believed it. And in light of all of his sin, as a persecutor and a blasphemer and as a violent man, here is Jesus now appearing to him, and his spirit draws him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Romans 5, from the pen of this man Paul, where sin increased, thanks be to God, grace increased all the more. And that's why verse 14 of our passage says this, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When it says this grace was poured out abundantly, that word abundantly is Paul taking the word for abundant, a Greek word for abundant, and then prefixing it with a word that means super. And so that's why the NIV says abundantly. It's actually super abundant. The grace of God for me, Paul, was super abundant. Now, as we've seen, grace by definition comes from the Lord and not us. And so too, in verse 14, does the faith and love that he grants in his grace. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me, super abundant grace, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So here is Paul's testimony. Not only was I saved in that dramatic conversion moment on the road to Damascus. But I was given not only God's grace, but in His grace, the faith and love that come only from Jesus Christ, that continue with me now in my Christian walk. And in fact, the Bible uses those things, faith and love, as evidence that we have been converted. Colossians chapter 1 says this, he has reconciled you, but here's how you know, if you continue in your faith. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Here's how, because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Let me just say, dear friend, that garden variety, respectable sin that you think is okay and you don't need to confess and you don't need to repent, that thing is harming others, 
That's a demonstration that you don't have this love that 1 John 3.14 speaks of. A dangerous, dangerous situation indeed. Every Christian testimony includes the scope of God's grace and the necessity of God's grace and the greatness, but notice fourthly, the reason for God's grace. The reason for God's grace in verses 15 and 16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Here he gives us the reason for God's grace. It begins in verse 15 by saying it's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That phrase and its truncated form that just says in a few places, this is a trustworthy statement. It's used five times, five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those three books, that's used five times. Now, what's interesting about those three books is they are called the pastoral letters. Timothy and Titus were pastors, and Paul wrote these letters to Timothy and Titus, those three books, and he uses this phrase, this is a trustworthy saying, sometimes with the appendage worthy of all acceptance, sometimes not, but he uses it especially in those, in fact, in only in those pastoral letters, and here's why that matters. That phrase, this is a trustworthy statement, refers to familiar, recognized statements of doctrine. And these are the letters then that were written to pastors, and it shows the importance of doctrine for pastors. You all get that? Pastors and leaders in God's church must know God's doctrine, must teach it to God's people. And then the Bible tells us all of the virtues of knowing doctrine. We will not be blown to and fro by every, by every what? You all remember? To and fro by every wind of doctrine. And here he refers to in verse 15, the one who came into the world is Christ Jesus. Notice that word order. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. He uses that order, Christ Jesus, 25 times compared to six times in his letters for Jesus Christ. Now why? Because Christ Jesus places it in chronological and logical order. Christ Jesus, notice he says, came into the world. Christ is the, is the Greek word Christos for anointed one. It's the equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one. The one who was predicted to come, and in the Old Testament, this one who was predicted to come is identified as none other than Emmanuel, God with us. And so Christ existed before he came. So Christ was the anointed one sent by God the Father to be the Messiah, to be the Christ. And then his human name given to him at his birth, Jesus, because Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. And Paul is putting that together now. Christ Jesus, the anointed one, the one who came to save his people from their sins, he came into the world. He preexisted. He didn't come into existence at Bethlehem. He came into the world. God became man. And so in verse 15, it's a heavy doctrinal statement. God became man, came into the world. And when it speaks of the world, it's speaking of the world of, of values and affections that are contrary to, to God. A world that is hostile toward God. To save, verse 15, <clears throat> that is rescue sinners. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Sin is any breach of God's character, whether in thought, whether in word, or in deed. And then he adds at the end of verse 15, of whom I am the worst. And given what we have seen about Paul's career, it's not an exaggeration. But if we extrapolate, we will see that I'm the worst and you're the worst. Why did God do this? What's the reason for this? Verse 16, here's the reason. That Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. When it says immense patience, the Greek word makrothumia is the word used there. It refers to patience with people. There's another word used in the New Testament for patience, but it's patience with our circumstances. But this is patience with, with people. And here it's God's patience with people like us and people like Paul. And so Paul was, was so heinous in his sin as a persecutor, a blasphemer, as a violent man, that now his conversion is proof that God can save any sinner. And so that's the reason for which God saved him, so that he could be a display of God's mercy showing that God's mercy extends beyond the worst sin. Now hear this, friends. God has left us here to be witnesses. That is the very reason that he has shown mercy to any of us. God did not save us for our own benefit ultimately. The ultimate reason is for his glory, and he desires his glory to be spread through his world, and that spreading of his glory in his world requires conversion, and conversion requires witnesses who tell and live the gospel. That's the reason that we were saved, and that's the reason that we're here. And so hear this. Our understanding of our plight should be such that we communicate that to others as well. We should communicate in our witness, in our testimony to others, an amazement at the grace of God in our lives. We're almost done. Dear friends, if we don't see ourselves as the sinners that we really are, then we will not be able to testify to the beauty of God's grace as it really is. That's why you've got to extrapolate your sin. That's why you've got to confess your sin so that you can see yourself as God sees you, as I can see myself as God sees me, and avail myself of the immense, superabundant grace of God, even after coming to Jesus in conversion, as I still sin. Mercy is abundant for me. Grace is abundant for you. And you can come to him with that. And then having done that, you can testify to people even though I grew up in a Christian home and even though I wasn't involved in the ravages of sin as so many others, even though all that's true for me, in the recesses of my heart there is darkness that God continually shows me and exposes. Jesus, by His grace, has changed me. Only then can you be a testimony to God's grace. That's the reason that He saved Paul. That's the reason that he saved you. Every Christian testimony includes the scope and the necessity and the greatness and the reason. And then verse 17 gives us the response to God's grace. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. All of this is ultimately about someone else, our God the King. 
He did all of this. Yes, you benefit, but frankly, that's secondary. What's primary is the glory that accrues to God, the King, the immortal, the invisible one. When sinners are converted, as was Paul, as was Ken, as have so many of you. We're going to pray and close. But when we do that, God is offering his grace to you in this sacred moment. Do not turn away and be hardened. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save, rescue sinners like you and me. And you should see yourself as the worst, as I should see. And you should fall at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ given on the cross for you. We're going to give you opportunity to do that when we close in prayer. Here's your take-home truth at the bottom of your outline. Our lips and our lives are to be proof, are to be proof of the abundant grace of God. Now, how do you receive this gift of the Lord Jesus Christ? You realize you're a sinner. Recognize your need of Christ who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and lived prior to that the life that you should have lived. And so his death was acceptable to God the Father because it was the death of a perfect life, not a sinful life. And then you repent. You say, I'm going to follow you with my life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And we bow and pray from your heart to God. You say to him, Lord, I'm a sinner. In your own words, from your heart to God, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize there is nothing I can do to rescue myself. I believe that Jesus lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I deserved. I ask you to apply his life and death to me. Save me. Rescue me. The Bible says he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for these moments to look at the testimony of the great apostle. We thank you for your mercy extended to him, but we thank you, Lord, for your mercy extended to us just as him. Our details are not spectacular. I've never been to Damascus. I've never been on the road to Damascus. Most, if not all here, have never been. Lord, we're not involved in physically persecuting others. We were raised in situations that were quite different, that did not find their outlet in, in violence and sadism. But, oh God, my sin is heinous before you. And one sin from my heart and on my lips and in my behavior requires the infinite value of the death of God the Son. Oh, Lord, every day help me to realize that. I pray that those here, these dear ones here, would realize that. And then help us seeing how heinous it is. Help us to turn and throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of our God. Help us to discontinue covering it because Jesus with his blood has covered it. Help us, Lord, to cease seeing our sin as something that is okay because everybody does it. Oh, God, purify your church. You've called us to be a holy church. Purify the hearts and the lips and the lives of your people. Bring us to confession and repentance of sin. 
Help us to see that you saved us to change us. And the change that is made in us is part of the testimony for the witness of the glory of your grace. And if I'm not changing, I'm not fulfilling that purpose, and I'm not bringing glory to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw some who came into this room who are outside the family of God into the family of God in this sacred moment. Save them, we ask you. Rescue them from their sin, that they may be now to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.